1: It's the California Report Magazine. I'm Sasha Coca. Today on our show, our state has some of the strictest gun laws in the country, but they're not always enforced when it comes to taking guns away from domestic abusers. What that meant for one family in the Central Valley.
0: We have to find a better way than,
1: sir, uh, do you have any guns? And the person just says no. But first, we're gonna meet some very special migrants who make a long journey to come to California. I'm not talking about people, I'm talking about monarch butterflies. Some monarchs can travel hundreds, even thousands of miles in their lifetime. And for a creature that weighs less than a paperclip, that's kind of amazing. It's so magical when you get to see their bright orange and black wings. They're almost glowing, and they've got a pattern that looks kind of like a stained glass window. These butterflies help the ecosystem. When the monarch lands on a flower, she uncoils her long proboscis. That's basically like a tongue, and takes a leisurely sip of the plant's nectar. And as she moves from flower to flower, she carries pollen with her. Now, historically, from about October to March, the monarchs have flocked to places in California like San Diego, Orange County, Pacific Grove, and Santa Cruz, where they form these huge clusters in groves along the coast. But the monarchs are in danger. Back in the 1980s, people logged millions of monarch butterfly sightings here in California every year. But by 2020, that number went down to less than 2,000 sightings. Our friends over at the Bay Curious podcast have been digging into why that might be. And today they're sharing a story with us from reporter Amanda Stupai. She visited Lake Merritt in Oakland looking for answers.
2: There's a lot of monarchs flying around. Yeah. Oh wow. wow, this
3: is their I'm with Brooke Levin and Tora Rocha looking for butterflies. A lot of people know that bees play an important role in pollination and how plants reproduce. It's less well-known that butterflies do the same thing.
2: I would see there's one sunning on the bottom of that branch right there.
3: Rocha got interested in butterflies while working for the city of Oakland. She used to landscape its parks. She realized over a decade ago that a lot of the things her crews did to make parks safe and tidy for visitors were
2: bad for the creatures living there. I realized that my landscape practices were destroying habitat for pollinators. And pollinators are crucial to the food chain. They
3: help plants reproduce and are a source of food for larger animals. Rocha decided to shift her practices to create habitat for creatures like bees and monarch butterflies.
1: They're mating, right there in front
3: of us. She shows me a patch of milkweed. It's a plant
2: with long, flat, smooth leaves that are a vibrant green color. You know, the milkweed is sort of the cruising zone. The males just cruise around it waiting for a female to come in. Rocha co-founded a nonprofit called the Pollinator Posse that offers training
3: and resources to people who want to protect pollinators, like the monarch butterflies. She says monarchs are the flashy ambassador for pollinators, which is fine by her.
2: Once you help one pollinator, you're really helping them all. And a lot of people don't realize how much humans are hurting pollinators. So we can't let the monarchs go because it means we're failing the rest of the pollinators. That once the pollinators go, the songbirds go. Then the songbirds go, guess what? Then the bees go, we're all gone. Because you can have food. The
3: last couple of years have been scary for monarch lovers. In 2020, observers counted fewer than 2,000 monarchs along California's coast. That's scary low. In the 1980s, there were millions. And even stranger, the butterfly's behavior seems to be changing.
2: We saw monarchs breeding throughout the year. My 37 years working in the parks in Oakland never saw monarchs in May or June in this garden mating or doing anything like that. Normally monarchs show up in the fall,
3: mate and rest, what's called overwintering, then take off again in the spring. But recently, Bay Area residents have been seeing caterpillars and butterflies year-round. And what is folks' best guess or hypothesis at this point as to why that's happening? That's the controversy. says scientists aren't sure what's going on. But some think if the monarch population dips too low, monarchs will give up migrating altogether. One thing is for sure. Monarchs still need help. Loss of habitat, pesticides, and climate change
2: are all threatening this beautiful bug. If we're willing to let an iconic species die, then we've really messed up. But helping is trickier than it seems. For years, well-meaning folks would raise monarchs in their homes or backyards. I was guilty of it. I reared a ton, you know, and I thought I was doing the right thing. Maybe you even raised monarchs in your elementary school classroom. But raising monarchs is actually illegal, just like it's illegal to raise any wild animal. The problem with rearing them is if you rear them indoors, they don't get the cues from nature to know what part of the migration they
4: are.
3: There are two proven ways people can help pollinators like monarchs, and they're legal. A big one is making your garden pollinator-friendly by growing nectar plants. That's what adult monarchs, bees, and hummingbirds eat. But plants
2: have to be pesticide-free. Ask the nurseries the hard questions, because they'll tell us we use pesticides because no one wants to buy a plant that has aphids. Well, we want to see aphids because that means it hasn't been sprayed. Monarch caterpillars, on the other hand, only eat milkweed. Rocha says it really should be the
3: native variety, not the tropical kind. That's because native milkweed goes dormant in the winter, which reinforces the monarch's traditional migration pattern.
2: And tropical milkweed can increase the spread of a deadly parasite that kills monarchs. We need to plant more native plants and more nectar plants in the winter here in the Bay Area for the monarchs. And um, we need to be gentler on the landscape. Rocha says the other big thing you can do to help Western monarchs is count them. You know, we need to look into more observation. We just don't have the answers. This can be as simple as filling out an online form when you see caterpillars or butterflies.
3: Or you can volunteer to collect data with other butterfly helpers at places like Children's Fairyland in Oakland. Oh my God, no voice on. So If I talk to you like I'm talking to first graders, it's
1: not going to try to be in there for the meeting.
3: This is Jackie Salas, She's in charge of the gardens at Children's Fairyland and has teamed up with Terry Smith of the Pollinator Posse to train volunteers how to identify monarch eggs and caterpillars. So we're not going to be moving any eggs or caterpillars. We're just going to be identifying what's going on on the plants that we have. Citizen scientists like these volunteers collect the data researchers all over the country will use to keep tabs on population health and patterns.
2: You can see it. It's so tiny, though. Oh my gosh, yeah. You see it? Yeah, that, that's one of the eggs. But yeah, she's
3: Without the information these volunteers are collecting, scientists wouldn't know where monarchs go or which habitat to target for restoration. Tora Rocha says in the world of butterflies, citizen scientists
2: have made a big impact. Scientists didn't know where monarchs went in the winter, it was citizen science that tagged them and found them in Mexico. These volunteers are committed. They come out once a week searching for tiny, almost
3: invisible specks on stems and leaves. Rocha is inspired by the passion of citizen scientists working to save pollinators like the monarchs.
2: I can't be any prouder than just sitting here watching them flutter by and knowing that, you know, we started this in 2011 and that they're still here. Recently, monarch enthusiasts got some hopeful news. This year, the
3: winter monarch population is way up from the dismal 2020 numbers. Early estimates show more than 200,000 butterflies overwintering along California's coast. But one good year doesn't spell relief for the monarchs. Their long-term survival still hangs in the balance.
1: was Amanda Stupai with a story from the Bay Curious podcast. And now to a story that's going to be a little harder to listen to, but it's one we think is important because it's about how the state is failing to protect some of its most vulnerable residents, people experiencing domestic violence. A new investigation from Cal Matters, a nonprofit news outlet that covers California policy and politics, finds that the state has failed to take guns away from thousands of domestic abusers. And those failures can have deadly consequences. Cal Matters' Robert Lewis brings us the tragic story now of one young mom in the Central Valley. And just a warning, this story has graphic descriptions of violence, and it could be upsetting. So if you're listening with kids, we recommend you come back to this episode later on our California Report Magazine
4: podcast. Kelly Gray's mom knew something was wrong. Kelly had grown distant after meeting her husband. But when she did reach out, like in this 2018 voicemail, she tried to sound normal. Hey, mama, I was
2: giving you a call back and want to say hi and tell you about that we're about to get on and get something
4: to eat, but... um. What Kelly's family didn't know was that her husband, Julio Gray, was keeping her a virtual prisoner in their Central Valley home, beating her regularly and threatening to kill her. Shortly after that voicemail, he allegedly drove her into the orchards outside town, kneeled her down, and put a gun to her head.
1: When you close your eyes and you think about what she had to have gone through and, you know, home alone in the dark with him... That's,
4: that's nasty. Jody Williams is Kelly's mom. She says they didn't learn just how bad it was until May 2020. That's when Kelly escaped with the couple's three young boys. She got an aunt to drive them to the Chowchilla Police Department early one morning when Julio was out of town for work.
1: She wanted to take care of her kids and she just wanted to be happy. She just wanted to be free.
4: But if Callie thought the system would protect her, she was wrong. A Cal Matters investigation has found that too often, California law enforcement and the courts fail to disarm domestic abusers. And two months after Callie Gray escaped, her husband found her. On July 14, 2020, Julio Gray stalked Callie to a doctor's appointment in Madera and shot her when she came out as she was loading their kids into a minivan. The brazen daylight killing in a parking lot riveted the Central Valley. The suspect in the tragic shooting death of a Chowchilla woman is behind bars just after... It was one of those salacious domestic violence murders that seems to hit the news every few months and then quickly fades from the public's memory. Julio Gray went on trial for murder in late September. Eric Dutemple was the prosecutor on the case.
0: And I say you're going to get to see this execution because we actually have that incident
4: on surveillance video. And I'm going to play that surveillance for uh, for you right now. Can I get the lights, please? Over the course of three weeks, DuTempo laid out an overwhelming amount of evidence proving Julio killed his wife. So how did something so horrific like this happen? Um, to get a full picture... fully understand. There was trace it, DNA, fingerprints, the surveillance video. But the trial also revealed how much authorities knew before the killing... A Chowchilla police officer, Ernest Escalera, testified about Callie's May 2020 escape when she first contacted police. Did she say why she didn't report this incident sooner?
0: She said she was scared and afraid of what uh, Julio might do if he found out or saw her there. So she waited on that specific day because he left to Monterey for work.
4: Did Callie do or say anything after your interview with her?
0: Yes, she... Um, was crying um, and stated that he was going to try and kill her.
4: Julio was arrested the next day. He made bail and got out. The DA's office didn't file charges right away. The DA says they wanted law enforcement to keep investigating so they could bring the strongest possible case. Three weeks later, Kelly met again with Chowchilla police, this time Detective Brian Bovee. Here's Prosecutor Dutemple questioning Bovee. Warning, it's pretty disturbing And uh, what kind of objects did she say she was abused
0: by? She mentioned a fire poker, and she described it in detail, having a triangular tip that was made out of iron, um, a metal bat, a chainsaw blade.
4: And she also told him about being Um, threatened with a gun, like that time Julio kneeled her down in the orchard, kids in the car.
0: He um, ordered her to... Tell the kids that, say goodbye to the kids because he's going to kill her. Then
4: he pulled the trigger.
0: She knew that the trigger was pulled because she heard the metal on metal click.
4: Despite that terrifying story, Julio still wasn't charged. There were no search warrants looking for his gun, no raid. Julio was out there armed and looking for Callie. So a month after her escape, she turned to the Madera County Family Court and asked for a domestic violence restraining order. Such orders require abusers to surrender their firearms. And judges are empowered to hold special hearings and hold abusers in contempt if they don't comply. In her written request, Callie included more than a dozen single-spaced pages of horror, including photos of bruises and stories about her husband's threats. Her mom, Jody Williams, read me part of Kelly's statement.
1: I felt scared for our sons. I didn't know if his anger was still going to continue over and him take his madness out on our boys. I am still very scared that Julio will find me and kill me. He has always told me that a restraining heart is not bulletproof and that he will find me and I believe him.
4: There's no evidence those haunting words made any impact on the judge who considered her request. At a June 2020 hearing, the judge ordered Julio Gray to stay away from Callie and the kids. But in spite of all her warnings about his gun, the judge asked just one question about firearms. Quote, Sir, there's no information that you have any guns or firearms or ammunition. Do you think you have any of these items? Julio's reply? No. In the end, it appears no authorities tried to disarm Julio Gray. A victim services worker, Esmeralda Duran, witnessed the result. She was with Callie the day of the killing, a month after Callie filed for a restraining order, two months after she went to the police.
3: I didn't see the truck at first because she was blocking my view, but
2: when she moved, um, that's when I saw him running towards the van. Did you hear anything? She screamed out the word no.
4: And after that,
0: nothing was said. Did you hear any gunshots? Yes.
4: The judge and Chowchilla police chief refused to talk to me about the case. Her death devastated Callie's family, who hoped she'll be remembered as a sweet soul who died protecting her children. Again, Callie's mom.
1: She made me happy. I love being her mama. I love Peter, mama.
4: The jury found Julio guilty. He was sentenced in November to life without parole. After the verdict, a different judge read aloud another standard court order, telling Julio if he had any guns, he'd need to surrender them.
1: That's Robert Lewis with a story he reported for Cal Matters. It's such an upsetting story and, you know, really speaks to the incredible violence that can happen um, to women and, and in communities that are rural and isolated where there aren't organizations sometimes to help folks. And I'm sure, Robert, that it took a real emotional toll to report this story too and to hear the pain in these people's voices when you were talking to them
4: Kelly's story really haunted me um, I just I couldn't get it out of my head I knew I wanted to had to do something with it um, the horror she she described the courage she had to to finally escape and to try to protect her kids and and the degree to which she she told anyone in a position of authority um, what was happening and and said exactly what he was going to do to her. And the fact that the system uh, didn't protect her, uh, it just it was unconscionable. And uh, she and her family deserved better.
1: Well, this is a story not just about one woman's case in Madera County, but it's really about our whole state. I mean, California is struggling to enforce its gun laws and to protect people from violence, especially family and domestic violence, when it involves guns. So tell us, what is supposed to happen when a judge issues a restraining order against a gun owner?
4: So in California, anyone who is the subject of a restraining order, even a temporary one, is supposed to surrender their firearms to law enforcement or sell them to a licensed dealer within 24 hours of being served. And that's because there's research showing domestic violence is much more likely to turn deadly when there's a gun present.
1: Well, and as we've just heard in Callie Gray's case, that certainly didn't happen. Is that typical?
4: Well, at the start of last year, there were 4,600 people the state Justice Department believed still owned a gun despite being the subject of a restraining order. But those were just registered guns. It doesn't count people like Julio Garay, who didn't have any weapons registered in his name when he shot his wife. The state court system, for its part, doesn't track how often victims like Kelly inform the courts that their abuser is armed with a registered or unregistered gun and how often guns are formally surrendered in those cases.
1: So could they be tracking this? I mean, is there a way that the courts could do that?
4: Well, there is a checkbox on every restraining order request form. Uh, Does your abuser have a gun? Yes, no. In theory, courts could be looking at how often victims are alleging there's a gun and then seeing if proof of surrender is filed. Um, But they're not doing it.
1: Robert, is this a new problem for us here in California, especially when it comes to restraining orders related to domestic violence?
4: No. There have been numerous reports through the years warning that the firearm relinquishment provisions in domestic violence cases are not being enforced. Uh, Judges aren't making sure their orders are followed. Law enforcement is often not going out trying to confiscate the guns. I talked to Paul Durenberger, a retired Sacramento County prosecutor who is in charge of domestic violence cases. He says in California it's too often just up to the abuser to decide whether to comply or not. And the honor system, it just doesn't work.
0: We have to find a better way than, sir, uh, do you have any guns? And the person just
4: says no.
1: Wow. What could the courts or law enforcement be doing to better enforce it rather than just relying on that honor system?
4: Well, by law, the family courts are supposed to be doing background checks on alleged abusers before issuing a restraining order, including a search for registered firearms. But half the courts don't even have access to the state firearm database. So sometimes judges don't know if an alleged abuser is armed.
1: Wait, why don't they have access to that state firearm database?
4: The state DOJ guards its data closely. Uh, The courts need to have the technical ability to access these systems while also keeping the information safe. Some courts either can't or haven't gone through the process to get access. And, you know, even when the courts do have evidence of a gun, judges are supposed to make sure the abusers file receipts proving those guns were surrendered. And they can hold abusers in contempt if they don't, but many judges just don't do that. Um, As for law enforcement, agencies are often not in the loop, and in many places, they don't send anyone out to get these guns.
1: Why isn't law enforcement following up? And and why aren't judges holding people in contempt if that's something they can do?
4: Restraining orders are handled in the civil side of the court. Uh, Law enforcement often isn't involved. And even when agencies get an alert about one of these cases it might be low on their priority list. Um, As for the courts, sometimes the judicial officers handling these cases might not have experience with these types of cases or might not recognize the danger. And when we're talking about unregistered guns, it can be hard for victims to provide enough proof for some judges to feel that they can act. Uh, I talked to Faith Whitmore, who runs an organization helping domestic violence survivors in Sacramento County. She acknowledged it can be hard to get evidence an abuser is armed, but she thinks the judges could be pressing harder.
1: You know, if it is the law, and there's a reason there is a law, and there's, you know, the courts are the ones to enforce that, it seems that Throwing up one's hands should not be the default uh, response. Are there any places in California that are handling this better, that could be models for the rest of the state?
4: There are some courts and certainly some individual judges who take these issues very seriously. I talked to a longtime judge in Mendocino County, Cindy Mayfield. She developed a clear, consistent policy for her court Every case, they check for registered firearms and make a note of it in the file. If there's evidence of a gun, they hold a special hearing. Uh, It's a rural county, lots of gun owners. Judge Mayfield says the issue comes up often.
2: I do kind of feel bad sometimes because they want them for wildlife or snakes or what have you on their ranches. But it's like, at this point, for the next three years, I'm sorry, you're
0: just not going to have guns because it's not safe.
1: Well, and it's not just rural counties where this is a problem. You actually found some evidence that the courts aren't following through in big counties and big cities, right?
4: I heard from attorneys and advocates in L.A. and other counties around the state that they rarely see guns confiscated. And I did an experiment in Orange County. I looked at hundreds of restraining order requests filed there the same month that Callie Gray filed her request in Madera County. And I found two dozen cases where an allegedly armed abuser was ordered to surrender any weapons they had. But in only one of the cases, was there evidence in the file that the subject of the order gave up a gun, and the courts just weren't following up.
1: Is there any hope that this can be fixed in California?
4: There was a bill that passed last year aimed at getting family court judges to use their power more to enforce orders. The bill is also supposed to make sure law enforcement is notified when an abuser doesn't surrender a gun. But parts of the law are voluntary, and some advocates are skeptical it'll change behavior. I do know uh, what happened to Callie Gray really shook a lot of people. I've heard prosecutors, judges, and advocates are looking at this issue trying to figure out how they can make sure something like that doesn't happen again.
1: I don't think any of us want something like this to ever happen again.
4: There are women right now uh, living in fear, living in, in, in horror and situations like like Callie dealt with, and we owe it to them and certainly owe it to the memory of Callie to, to make sure when they build up the courage to escape, they're protected.
1: That's Cal Matters Robert Lewis. Thanks, Robert.
4: Thanks for having me.
1: You can read Robert's full investigation into California's failure to disarm domestic abusers at californiareport.org. And that's the California Report magazine for this week. We are a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Victoria Mauleon is our senior editor. Our producer director is Susie Rocho, and Brendan Willard is our sound engineer. Our team also includes Amanda Font and Izzy Bloom. Thanks this week to Adrian Hill and the California Newsroom, and to Katrina Schwartz and Olivia Allen Price at Bay Curious. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine